Let's go ahead and get started with a prayer, and then we can jump in. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Direct, O Lord, all of our actions by your holy inspirations. Carry them on by your gracious assistance, that every prayer and work of ours might begin always from you, and by you be happily ended, through Christ our Lord, our Lady Seat of Wisdom. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move pretty uh, quick this morning. There's a lot of references, uh, some historical references that I want to make. Uh, we decided to do, um, as we are wont to do in the summer times when attendance usually uh, um, kind of uh, slacks off, is, uh, is to find some interesting topics to get into that are relevant to our world today. And so um, with the help of the... Um, with the help of our Education and Formation Office, uh, with, uh, with Juana, and it was Denise at the time, but also with Tucker's support as well, we wanted to talk about what is in the news today and the church's approach to racism, migration, and um, critical race theory. And so just very important that I'm not going to get into the political stuff. I'm going to take it from the point of view of the church's social teaching, so the church's social doctrine. A great book on the subject, um, which breaks down each of these points, is called All One in Christ by Edward Fesser. It's put out by Ignatius Press, and it came out, I think, just a couple of years ago. Oh, it just came out last year um, by Ignatius Press. All One in Christ by Edward Fesser. That's one S, F-E-S-E-R. But it's a very short, as you can see, it's a very short treatise. It just kind of covers it all. So I I encourage that. And I'll also be quoting from the Catechism a couple of times this morning. Um, It's pretty safe to say that in today's, in today's world, you know, racism is, is widely uh, condemned um, by, uh, by everyone. I mean, no one, no one wants racism, right, in the world. Um, and, if they, and if they do, I mean, that's just, they probably have mental health issues. So, um, so, um, so when we talk about this, it's, it's helpful to go back. You know, a lot of people will accuse the church of owning slaves. You know, there were bishops in America that at the founding of the country and even into the 1800s owned slaves. Um, and people will look at those situations and they'll say, well, the church has no feet to stand on because she used to practice slavery. Um, and yet, I, I want to go back to, um, uh, to a, a couple of uh, interesting proclamations. Paul VI uh, wrote a document, uh, wrote a, a letter to the church, Octogesima Adveniens, in 1971. And he, he, quote, he, he says in there, the members of mankind share the same basic rights and duties as well as the, as well as the same supernatural destiny, right? So the members of mankind share the same basic rights and duties as well as the same supernatural destiny, right, which is heaven. And then he says, all should be equal before the law, find equal admittance to economic, cultural, civic, and social life, and benefit from a fair sharing of the nation's riches, right? So all should be equal before the law, find equal admittance to economic, cultural, civic, and social life, and benefit from a fair sharing of the nation's riches. The reason that I start from this document in 1971 is this gives us a good working definition of what racism is. It would be taking that whole list of things and saying because of someone's country of origin or their skin color or something like that, that they should be denied one of these things. They should be denied... Uh, admittance to economic or cultural or civic and social life, or they should be denied some benefit from a fair share in a nation's riches, right? Which goes beyond wealth, by the way. Nation's riches is a church word that's used in such, is a, is a phrase that the church uses, and the magisterium uses in its social doctrine of the church to speak about any of the things in which a country or a nation benefits in, so cultural goods, 
um, the values of that cold patriotism and the different virtues that are exercised by that nation um, and the people that belong to that nation. Right? So most recently in the church's history, um, racism was actually um, condemned uh, at the same time that, so most recently, at the same time that we saw um, the rise of the uh, Nazi uh, regime in Germany. And so Beatissima Apostolorum by Benedict XV in 1914. Uh, interestingly enough, in 1937, meet Brennender Sorge. This was the first, in 1937, this was the first encyclical letter that was ever written where the original was not written in Latin. And what happened is that the church was being persecuted in Germany, and they snuck a few copies of this encyclical letter condemning the Nazi regime and their exaltation of race over, you know, and bloodlines and things like that. They snuck it into Germany. It was secretly printed in Germany, distributed to all the Catholic churches, and it was read from every pulpit in Germany in 1937 on the same Sunday. And then that's when the Nazi regime went in and started persecuting the church physically and arresting their priests and things like that. So the church was very, very clear. And uh, it wasn't only racism, but it was talking about the other thing, whoever exalts a race above in order to subjugate others, right? And whoever, uh, it, it, they call it idolatrous, right? To, to, to say that there's a race that's, that's, um, that somehow is, has more inherent dignity than, than, than other races. Uh, John Twenty-Third, Pachem and Teres, in the Second Vatican Council, uh, in Nostra Aetate, uh, reproves the discrimination, uh, so it uses the word discrimination, against those who do not have the same beliefs or the same religious um, uh, beliefs. Uh, very important document in 1988 that covers a lot of what we're dealing with, to, uh, uh, what we're uh, talking about today, was by the International Commission for uh, Theological Works, which was, it's just called The Church and Racism. And if you look it up, The Church and Racism, Vatican, it, it'll pull that up on the Vatican website. And then also we have, uh, as, a, uh, as kind of a brother or a sister to the catechism, we also have the compendium of the social doctrine of the church. And this is where we get into the church's teaching about um, uh, social, the, the social doctrine and how we live out the gospel, uh, preferential option for the poor, um, uh, subsidiarity, all those, the nine principles that were laid out um, by the church throughout the, throughout the centuries. So Aquinas, a lot of these uh, uh, works go back to uh, Aquinas, St. Thomas Aquinas, that recognizes that we are made in the image and likeness of God. But that image and likeness is because of the soul that we're given. And guess what? Soul doesn't have any racial component to it. It's the principle of life within ourselves. It's given to us. And because we have a rational nature, because we have an intellect and a will, we share the same common dignity. That's the image and likeness of God. And that's what where the equality flows from. And in, we're saying that of someone who, we're, we say that quoting someone who is writing in the 13th century on discrimination and on the, the fact that all people have inherent dignity and have, in the same equality of value and worth. But interestingly enough, uh, it was Paul III in 1537 in the encyclical Sublimis Deus that actually wrote that it was because of the discovery of the new world, and with the discovery of the new world, people started using racial theories to justify the subjection of Native Americans and black slaves, right? So before the discovery of the new world, like 
it was more of an indentured servitude and things like that. But what happened was they wanted to they wanted to enslave the Native Americans, so they would use these racial theories that they're just animals. They they don't have the they don't they don't have the capacity to receive the faith. They don't have the ability to communicate. You know, they're pretty much just you know they're they're animals, and they 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 we can force them to work for us. Right, and so that desire to subjugate them, they began to create these racial theories. So Paul, Pope Paul III is writing about this in 1537, and he and he declares for the whole church um, a few different things: Indians and Native Americans are true are true humans and have a capacity to receive the faith and make choices on their own. Then he says that uh, slavery. Um, and we're calling, um, or chattel slavery, um, that slavery is satanic because it causes division amongst men. That's interesting. So he talks about what Satan tries to do, dividing men from God and then men from each other. And he says slavery itself is satanic because it's the work of Satan trying to divide men away from each other, right? And to destroy, uh, and because Satan is the enemy of man who seeks to destroy man's value and dignity. We're talking about a document that's five centuries old, right? So when people say that the church didn't have any any dog in the fight until recently, right? I mean, it's Pope Paul III blaming on the discovery of the New World and um, and and saying that slavery is satanic, right? And then he also declares that the rights are grounded in human nature, not religiosity, right? So he's saying even if they don't accept the faith, right, they still have an equal value and equal dignity, and you can't subjugate them and you can't uh, treat them is something other than human. Um, and getting into, I mean, getting into um, the, the the distinctions here, like a lot of times we use the word, when we talk historically, slavery to mean a lot of different things. So there's chattel slavery, and that's where you imprison someone, right? They're deprived of their liberty, right? They're forced, it's a forced deprivation of their liberty, and then uh, a forcing of work, a forcing of labor. Uh, so that's that's the slavery that's being condemned. Um, not, although there are there are practices of it that need to be condemned, but as a whole, indentured servitude, uh, which some people will, will call slavery, is a is a separate thing that is not inherently wrong in and of itself. And also penal servitude. So for those prisoners who are working because it's part of their um, it's part of their conviction. So even before Pope Paul III, we have in 1435, Sicut Datum, and this was condemning the enslavement of the uh, inhabitants of the Canary Islands, when the Canary Islands were, um, uh, were colonized. So that was Pope Eugene IV. 1537, uh, which I just mentioned, Pope Paul, or, yeah, Pope Paul III, not only did he, did, he, did he condemn slavery, he attached the penalty of excommunication for anyone who deals in the slave trade, and whoever mis mistreats their servants or treats indentured servants or penal servants like uh, chat uh, chattel slavery, right? So, and, and he spoke about uh, about treating even indentured servants and um, uh, and, and penal uh, servants uh, with the with 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 dignity um, in 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 their in their work. Fifteen ninety one, Gregory the fourteenth with cum sicuti. He condemned the enslavement um, that was being practiced in the Philippines, and he also renewed the uh, decree of excommunication for anyone who dealt in the slave trade, but especially in the uh, Philippines. Um, again, you, could, you can go in, in the work, uh, The Church and Racism, 
Uh, you, can, you can get all the different quotes from this. But uh, continuing on, 1639, Urban VIII, 1686, Innocent XI, 1741, Benedict XIV. Uh, that was because of an, uh, slave trade growing in Brazil. And so he condemned it and then excommunicated anyone who, uh, who promoted it. 1839, Gregory the Sixteenth, uh, 1866, Pius the he condemned the enslavement of those who were unjustly deprived of liberty. And then Leo the Thirteenth in 1888, right? And so the church has a long history of this. Um, so just looking at that, um, you know, the the we look back to the fact that um, you know people will look at uh, you know the the churches that that the the churches, the pastors, the bishops in the United States, for example that owned slaves. Many of them, again, we make that distinction, many of them were indentured servants who would come and they would uh, be working for their freedom for a number of years and then set, set free. But then also the very fact that you would have people living a life that did not represent the church's teaching. So there were indeed bishops who probably should have been publicly excommunicated for owning slaves, um, you know, is, is a way of like, you know, that they were their property. Um, we see that in, uh, there was a bishop in Missouri back in the 1800s who had five or six uh, housekeepers uh, and, and landscapers who were slaves. Um, and a lot of people, I mean, he got run, run out of town a few times because uh, people disagreed with him so much. Um, and so there are times in which we can criticize the individual actions of somebody while even saying, okay, I understand that doesn't represent the church's teaching and the way in which we should be treating our brothers and sisters. Uh, and again, because it's not based on religiosity, whether we're treating our, it shouldn't be the way that we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ and our, and our brothers and sisters of the human race, right? Right? It has nothing to do with whether they're baptized or not. It's the very fact that whether they're baptized or unbaptized, um, they have inherently the equal value, um, and they should be given access before, um, um, before the, um, law, before the law, before the culture, okay? I'm going to jump into rights and duties of nations and immigrants if there's no questions on slavery. It all kind of gets put back together later. Nothing. Okay. All right. Rights and duties of nations and immigrants. All right. So, uh, the church has always taught that one should be attached to one's own country. Attached to one's own country. We boil that down to the virtue, one of the moral virtues. It's called patriotism. So, this is love of country and work to build it up from the point of view of the progress of all citizens, right? That's patriotism. So uh, a love for country. And it actually, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, um, the Catechism of the Catholic Church says that it flows from the virtue of gratitude, right? So our patriotism flows, the virtue of patriotism flows from the gift of gratitude. However, St. Thomas Aquinas, interestingly enough, in his structure of the moral virtues, um, says that it's a virtue that flows from the fourth commandment. What's the fourth commandment? Uh, Nicholas, what's the fourth commandment? You raised your hand, dude. With Father's Day? I hear a bunch of the adults going, oh, honor your father and mother. It's like, <laughs> I should have pointed to one of the adults. What's <laughs> so, it, so, it flows, so it flows from the piety and the respect that we should have for our mother and father. So we actually see, right, when people talk about, like a lot of times you see it in like Russian mafia, like we will return to the motherland. But really that idea of motherland, like it, it nurtures us, like our country should nurture us. 
and 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 uh, and patriotism is a sub is a is a sub virtue under uh, or under the fourth commandment, right? So the fourth commandment commands this of us. Um, so uh, in the Catechism, it talks about the uh, the family and the kingdom and the authorities in civil society, the duties of citizens, the duties of the nation uh, of the nation uh, state. So uh, paragraph twenty two thirty nine says it is the duty of citizens to contribute along with the civil authorities to the good of society in a spirit of truth, justice, solidarity, and freedom. The love and service of one's country follow from the duty of gratitude and belong to the order of charity. Submission to legitimate authorities and service of the common good require citizens to fulfill their roles in the life of the political community. This is the same, just, and I'm going to go on a tangent, this is the same... Um, uh, this is the same paragraph that the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops use in uh, the guide for forming um, forming consciences uh, before voting, and says that a Catholic who does not form their conscience properly and actually in a democratic society go and vote is actually committing a sin if they do that purposely, like just saying, I'm not going to vote, right? Rather than forming your conscience and going because we have an obligation out of patriotism to work for the common good of our country, and that's, you know, that's done mainly by the way in which we vote, right, um, in electing representatives. So, uh, a nation. What is a nation? A nation is a community based in a given territory and distinguished from other nations by culture. A community based in a given territory and distinguished from other nations by culture. So a nation is different in the order of, of being in the state, right? Because no one really decides what a territory shares a culture. It's just kind of, that's just natural human development. But yet John Paul II in his book, uh, Memories and Memoirs, I think, I think, I, I think it's like Memories and Memoirs. It's, a, it's, it's his reflections on his priesthood and on his life in Poland. He actually says, that, but the nation, because we need organization, the nation must then uh, express itself and exist as a state, right? So those people generally come together and they say, here are the laws that govern us, right? Here are the ways in which, you know, we have, we're going to establish legitimate authority, right? So it becomes a state, right? So for us, it would have been by the Constitution, right? First, the Declaration of Independence, which pushed off the monarchy because we were a given territory um, in, in natural law rights. We had the right to do that. Right to push off another government that was not part of it, and then by that that nation then coming into itself and then expressing itself in a state through a constitution. Right. Again, this is just the fact of it. I don't want to get into political theories of whether it's a good thing, whether it's a bad thing. I mean, but to understand the basic building blocks of society help us then enter into dialogue um, about you know about what we hope to accomplish. So it's distinct from a state, but it must exist as a state with governance and laws. Uh, following on, um, uh, same area in the catechism, so paragraph 2241. 2241, the more prosperous nations are obliged to the extent that they are able to welcome the foreigner in search of the security and the means of livelihood, which he cannot find in his country of origin. Public authorities should see to it the natural right is respected that places a guest under the protection of those who receive him. 
So public authorities should see to it that the natural right is respected that places a guest under the protection of those who receive him. Notice, and I'm going to get into this in a little bit, that it says that someone has a right to seek somewhere to find security, but nowhere does the church ever say that a nation has a duty or an obligation to receive a foreigner. But if they do receive them, then they must fall under the equality of law and protection. Right? So we'll get into that in a second. It says, political authorities, for the sake of the common good, for which they are responsible, may make the exercise of the right to immigrate subject to various juridical conditions, especially with regard to the immigrants' duties toward their country of adoption. Immigrants are obliged to respect with gratitude the material and spiritual heritage of the country that receives them, to obey its laws, and to assist in carrying civic burdens. Right? So the nation itself has the, has the obligation to actually uh, put onto the immigrants certain requirements, right? So when I went over to uh, Italy in order to study, and Father Malacher is going to have to do this in a couple months, in order to renew his student visa that, that, that expired, we actually have to take cultural classes and language classes. And within three months of being there, we have to test at a B2 proficiency in Italian. And if we fail the B2 test, so there's uh, A1, A2, B1, B2, C1, C2. So we're like in that upper two-thirds of like being able to carry on a conversation like taking a classes to know what to expect when you go to a pharmacy what to expect when you go to the grocery store like what to do when the police like when when you like if the police stop you um the different laws and things like that and then we have to take italian classes if we fail that culture and english test guess what we're deported so it's literally sink or swim when we go over there and there's usually about 10 percent of guys who don't have the capacity to like learn the language well enough, and also be able to like, do the cultural test, within three months, we have to surrender our visa and we're deported. Well, we self-deport, right? And, but we go in there knowing, okay, if I'm going to be in this country and a guest of them, like, I have to be ready to take on what they require of me because I have the obligation, as it says, uh, immigrants are obliged to respect with gratitude the material and spiritual heritage of the country that receives them, right? to obey its laws, and to assist in carrying civic burdens, right? So, Pope Francis uh, recently has often emphasized um, the plight that we have these days because of devolving situations, political situations in country, the involuntary migration um, of, of folks. Um, and he says, and he uses four verbs when he talks about people who are forced out of their home country like realizing they're forced out. Like, for example, uh, we've had, we have some families in our own community from Venezuela who are, who are here seeking a visa through an asylum process because they've been arrested for protesting the government and the president in Venezuela. And so they get imprisoned and they're, they're beaten cruelly. And um, yeah, it's, it's terrible. So he uses four verbs when he talks about this plight of migration when people are forced out of their home country. Welcome, protect, promote, integrate. So he uses that, he uses that, um, that reference from the catechism to say we must welcome them, right, because they, they, their home is now closed to them. We should protect them because they're usually fleeing violence, right? They're fleeing from, a, from an unsecured uh, or a lack of security. We should promote their well-being, right? So we should try and provide for them a life. Um, I don't know if you remember, but when, there, when, when um, again, I'm not, not getting into whether it was good or bad, but when we withdrew from Afghanistan. There were a lot of articles in the Catholic News Herald that talked about the 
Catholic Charities receiving government funding to help settle um, Afghanistan families who are assisting the United States here in our Charlotte diocese. So there were um, Ukraine is the same way. We've had we had a family that they helped settle just right across the street from our church from Ukraine because of the devolving situation there in the war. So we should promote their well-being in our country, but also help them to integrate so that they can respect and be integrated into our spiritual and material heritage, as well as knowing the laws and the language and things like that. Um, so he also said in 2015, all these are right, he, he speaks to the International Commission for Migration um, every year, immigrant migration, not butter, monarch butterflies. Um, but to the International Commission for Migration every year, they have, a, uh, they have a summit in Rome, and he always goes and speaks to them. In 2015, he spoke of migration being a difficulty, and um, he said especially when the immigrants are not suitably motivated, managed, and regulated, right? And so they should receive help from, uh, from different organizations and even the government to help motivate them to integrate, to help manage their well-being, and help to regulate uh, in the events that uh, that uh, there there are people there there are too many migrants coming. In two thousand and one, Pope John the uh, Pope John Paul II reminded, uh, going back to this, reminded that there is a right to emigrate, to leave, so ex migration, um, but not to immigrate. So there's not so somebody can't say, well, I have a right to live in that country. They do have to say, I have a right to leave this country, but they can never say that they have a right to, to be in another country. Um, and he said that this is due to a difficulty in the destination country to suitably welcome and promote the life of the migrants, right? So if there's a difficulty in that country where they cannot suitably uh, provide for the welfare of a foreigner, then that country has the right to limit who comes into the country. He also... Uh, wrote in 1995, uh, the, the, he pointed out the increasing difficulty um, in migration throughout the world because of the plight of illegal migration, uh, illegal immigration. And he said that countries do have a right to redo their laws and to, and to stop migration in a time in which they're trying to figure out how to deal with illegal immigration. Um, in 2013, Pope Francis um, said that all countries should improve their socioeconomic conditions so that countrymen do not desire to leave. And he was speaking about the virtue of patriotism. Like, if your country, if your, if your country doesn't have the socioeconomic, uh, you know, uh, um, wealth and, 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 and good for people to share in, it should be promoted, like the government should work and the citizens should work to promote it so that people don't want to leave their country, right? So they find a place of peace and prosperity. Um, so when situations are difficult, Countries have, and this is Pope Francis in 2013, countries have an obligation towards those who have a special attachment. Right? What does that mean? So Thomas, so this is those who are natural citizens. So when situations are difficult, countries have an obligation towards those who have a special attachment to that country, and that special attachment is a natural citizenship. So France, if Pope Francis in 2013, uh, when this address that he gave to the uh, National Congress for Migration, when this address was given, uh, the footnote, when it was written out, the footnote referenced St. Thomas Aquinas, Summa Theologica, uh, the second of the second part, um, question 31, article 3, where he explains that every natural agent in the nation as a whole is a natural agent, that a natural agent bestows benefits on those beings that are closest to it, 
And then when it bestows, uh, it, when it bestows um, benefits on those who uh, are not closest to it, that rest is charity, right? So the promotion of migration is out of the charitable nature of a nation, right? Not out of any right that someone has to, the, to that nation's wealth, right? So this is just natural, this is just natural law. Um, he also spoke in the same address in 2013 about the need to preserve a common culture, right? The need to preserve a common culture. And he said that migration can be limited when, um, when immigration policy lets in uh, so many people that it begins to tear away at the fabric of the culture of that nation. Um, what I, why did I write that? Culture classes in Italy. Oh, that's when I was going to mention that I had to take culture classes in Italy, right? One of the reasons, another reason that Italy does that is because they receive their migrants. They, they want to make sure that they're living according to the cultural norms of Italy rather than, rather than, you know, having certain groups. Because it happens, I think, anywhere where we see migrants is they tend to group together because they feel more comfortable with each other because they share a common culture. And that can tend to tear down the culture in the place where they're living, right? Yes, sir. I can only speak about student visas, but from what I understand, resident visas are all subject to the culture uh, to the culture classes. Right, because because the classes that we took for seminarians, a lot of the stuff was not helpful because they they also taught us how to enroll our children in Italian schools, like how to get health insurance, all those things. So I'm assuming people who were there because I saw moms and dads who are from other countries, I'm, I'm assuming that, that it's the same requirement for, not for a tourist visa, of course. Second question. Italy has a culture. Mm -hmm. France has a culture. Right. America has a melting pot. Mm -hmm. Various cultures. Sure. We have Italians, we have Germans, we have Spanish, so forth. So what's the culture of America versus the culture of Italy? It's homogeneous. So the reason that I can't give a good answer to that is because the question then becomes a political question. So if we recognize what the church upholds as the nation has a right, everything else can be worked out within that. Within that. So what you'll have is the federal government that is expressing something about, about immigration for the nation, but then every state, right, because we're also we're, we're the United States, you know, you, you, we talk about it all the time, like each state kind of has its own culture as well. So they also have to express themselves in the, in the immigration policy of their state, where they can set up different requirements that are more stringent than the federal requirements. Well, yes, and that's, that's the whole system of our federal, that's, that's how we were founded as a nation. That's how we were founded as a nation. And again, like, you, we could sit down and have a conversation about like, whether there's a good policy or bad policy, and that's a political conversation. This is just the church doesn't have that conversation. The church can enter into that conversation church, as long as she is expressing the natural the natural rights and the God given rights of, of people. Well, again, so you're getting into political realities that you know we can judge history. But again, the church gets involved in these things when they see the rights of people or rights of nations being right. being um, being usurped. But we don't learn from history. Right. So, I mean, I, I would say, yeah, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't have an answer to that question about the church being on the wrong side. 
I mean, I'd have to read up on it and then like recognize like I'm not coming in to a conversation about some action that our nation took as a priest of God telling you that this is what the church teaches. I would be coming in as an individual citizen saying, you know, this seemed like it was a pro, this seemed like it was a con, this looks like the consequences, like I would have to do in my AP history course, you know, please analyze, you know, the, the, the consequences of this or that. Um, so, because some people will also say the same thing about the church coming down on the wrong side of racism, you know, in the, in, uh, you know, in the, in the time in which there were, you know, there were the, uh, we were trying to desegregate. And yet I'm just like, okay, well, you took this one instance here, which doesn't represent what the church has always taught about everyone being equal. You took that to say, you took this bishop and priest and all that that were working against desegregation. And yet here in our diocese of Charlotte, uh, Monsignor Chauffet, not Monsignor Chauffet, Monsignor uh, Kovacek, God rest his soul, wonderful priest from Poland, um, was was threatened with shotguns when we were the first schools in North Carolina to desegregate. At the same time that there were people who were working against desegregation, I'm like, wait a second. So we're actually we'll get into that with critical race theory here in a second about the logical fallacy there. Of um, it's the logical fallacy of um, well, oh, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Um, so Saint Thomas Aquinas, uh, in his in his work on kinship. He speaks about ancient Israel, and um, uh, so anyways, this is about culture, you know, about, about culture. He says that when Israel would welcome a foreigner, they would, they would be always considered a foreigner until the third generation, and that's because it says it takes three generations for, those, for, for someone who has come in order to have the common good and culture firmly rooted in their hearts. Isn't that interesting? So, so it's kind of that natural, that natural, uh, uh, I mean, human nature there. Um, Pope Francis also said that too much free flow across borders dilutes any allegiance to shared cultural values and threatens national unity, right? When we have too much of a free flow. So again, like, let me, let me, let me express how this, how the church would how the church would respond or how the church should respond or how we should respond as the church if we're like having a, a rational conversation about the best immigration policy for our country. As soon as someone says, we must have open borders, you can say, actually, no. That's a policy that, that, that violates the rights of the nation and the citizens. We can say we can have more open borders than we did at a different time or more open borders than that. But if you say open borders, well, I mean, the, that's, that violates natural law violates the rights uh, and the duties of the citizens who live there. So too much free flow, Pope Francis says in 2013, across borders dilutes any allegiance to shared cultural values and threatens national unity. So in the document of the church and race, uh, racism, the church emphasized that a nation has the obligation to set the number of immigrants and the kind of immigrants those that are, uh, in order to set whether they're, they're, more, they're more able to integrate into the cultural and the shared uh, values of there. They also, the nation also is obliged to prevent social imbalance, guard against any rejection of sociological denial that occurs when too many foreigners seek to preserve their own identity and cultural norms over and against the norms of their destination country, right? 
So of course, they're going to bring their own culture, they're going to bring their own customs and things like that. And we respect that until it becomes something that begins to tear away at the culture of the nation that's there. All right. Questions about nation, the rights and duties of nations and immigrants? All right. Again, none of this gives us, none of this is getting into like, what about general statute number? No, I mean, we're not, this is just the, the basis of the church's social teaching and social doctrine. All right, so critical race theory. So for those who, um, so for those who are unaware, critical race theory actually comes from, uh, its origins uh, are in, uh, come from some academic legal theorists uh, in universities. So we have uh, some of them that are well known, Derek Bell, Alan Freeman, uh, Kimberly, Kimberley, Kimberley, Kimberley Crenshaw, uh, and it's also um, it's also sometimes called anti-racism. So in a lot of the works that have been put out, like uh, uh, White Fragility um, and a book called Critical Race Theory, um, it's been called anti-racism. And so people hear that um, and they think, oh well, it must be benign because of course I'm anti-racist, right? So of course you know that. So it can masquerade as kind of a benign sort of thing. So um, three, three kind of points, general points that, that are shared by these, these works is that, uh, so critical race theory, if we want to look at what it is, so racism fills all the nooks and crannies of our social institutions, and it fills, fills all the psyches of every individual, especially, and it's especially deep-seated in, in white psyches. Um, I'm quoting, by the way, uh, Alan Freeman there. Uh, this leads to a, uh, quoting Kimberley Crenshaw, this leads to a system of white over color ascendancy that is not aberrational, but the ordinary way of doing business in a white culture. And then three, non-white people suffocate under a regime of racist power, white privilege, and white supremacy. Right, so this is kind of that, the basic of, basis and origins of critical race theory. So that manifests itself, right? They say, so look at society and it manifests itself in inequity, in disparity between whites and members of other races. We also see it manifest in microaggressions and an implicit bias. So for example, a, a microaggression might be, would be said, well, you know, a person of, of, of color saying, well, I went to the store and it was a white cashier and they didn't smile at me and they didn't, um, you know, they didn't make small talk with me, right? And so they, they say that that's like a microaggression and it's manifest, you know, the, the implicit bias in their, uh, in the implicit racism in their, in their life. Or a white pedestrian walking down the sidewalk and um, uh, doesn't return the greeting of a non-white jogger that, that just goes, good morning, right? And they just, they just kind of walk by. Um, so in uh, so so what happens? They assign they 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 will assign this um, phrase "white fragility." So they assign this label in critical race theory by assigning this this label. Um, the proponents of critical race theory are practicing uh, racism. So we'll get into some of the logical fallacies here, because they say that white people are prone to defensiveness and argumentation when someone points out their bias. Right, so so if somebody says, "Well, that's racist," and you're like, "Well, that wasn't racist. I just, you know, I just wasn't really paying attention." And they're like, "Well, it's racist. You di disagreed with me, right? It's racist. You disagreed with me, and it just shows that because you're defensive, that that's implicit bias, right? It's like, okay, like what just happened there? <laughs> Circular reasoning, right? Circular re reasoning. 
So if you disagree with me, you're proving my point. And then the idea of subtle racism. So racism, they'll say that racism of Jim Crow is just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, this subtle ra racism, and um, in, in a work by uh, Kendi, How to Be an Anti-Racist, or that is how to be someone a proponent of critical race theory, Kendi actually writes that desegregation wasn't enough, and protection laws are not enough, and outright racism being gone, uh, the situation is actually worse. So Delgado and Stefanik in Critical Race Theory write that subtle racism in some ways is more sinister than concrete rules such as Jim Crow because it's not out in the open and people can get away with it. So Kendi's solution in How to Be a Racism, Anti-Racist, says equality laws systematically favor whites. So if we have equality for all, it's automatically systematically going to favor the white person. And so she says that we need only aggressive color conscious efforts on behalf of non-whites. So applying the same legal principles to all people equally, they say benefits white people and discriminates against people of color. So her solution, she says, the only solution to racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination. And then arguing past that, how do we do this? Campus free speech codes, diversity, equity, and inclusion offices and businesses, sensitivity training if someone feels like they've been the, uh, the, on the receiving end of racism or subtle racism or a microaggression. So what's interesting about this is that it's not actually, it's not actually responding to a true immorality or it's not even responding to a true ignorance. Because sometimes we'll say, well, that, you know, some, somebody had this racist comment because they were just ignorant. I mean, I've, I've run into that before where somebody, for example, where I've had to tell someone because they didn't know, they were like, oh, is mass going to be in English or in Mexican? And I'm like, you mean English or Spanish? <laughs> it's like, and they're just like, what? And I'm like, they don't speak Mexican, they speak Spanish. And they're like, oh, I didn't know that, <laughs> right? It's like, so we're not talking about ignorance or, or, or immorality. Now, however, and raise your, are you all from Mexico? Or no? Oh, that's right, you're Dominican. But some people will say, some people say, no, Father, we do, we do speak Mexican. <laughs> so some of them will be like, no, we really do. And I have one family who came to me, it really surprised me. I, they, I said, uh, they, they, the family was meeting with me when I first got here, and I was trying to speak Spanish, and my Spanish was a lot worse than it, than it is now. And they said, Father, we prefer to speak English. We don't speak Spanish. I'm like, you're from Mexico. They're like, yeah, but we speak Michoacan. Like, they speak their, their state's, like, language that comes from that, the, the tribal. They speak a dialect. And they were like, we're not, we're not very good with Spanish. We speak English, and we speak our native tongue from our, from our, from our pueblo. So oh, she's pointed at her husband. <laughs> Well, good luck if you ever need marriage counseling, finding a therapist. <laughs> so what this reveals then, okay, yeah, we're doing okay on time. 
what this reveals then is like critical race theory, even though they say it's about morality, it's about, it's not about immorality, it's not about ignorance, it's about an exercise of power, which is why they say we, we have to then respond. The only solution to racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination, and why, and why critical race theory labels, you know, every institution, every different, and so we see this with what then critical race theory uh, puts out in our in our in our world today this social contagion this word intersectionality, right? So any race, sex, class, national origin, sexual orientation, anyone who can claim that they're oppressed, right, must then you know were, must then uh, uh, practice this anti-racist discrimination, right, to basically subjugate the other person. So it really comes from uh, in what uh, Pope Francis said. I think Father Malacher quoted this about a month ago or so, I was out of town, and he decided to, anyways. <sighs> oh, poor Father Malacher, we're losing him. Um, but he quoted Pope Francis' address in, I think it was Hungary. Was he in Hungary? I forget. Anyways, uh, I'll have to go back and look. Um, but he, he said that, that all of this comes from uh, a desire for vengeance. A de desire for vengeance, right? Historically, my people or you know, I'm part of a group that's been hurt, I must hurt back, right? So it doesn't come from a place that bring us together. It doesn't come from a place of understanding the other person. It doesn't come from a, from a, from, from a place of forgiveness and finding reconciliation in Christ. It comes from a place of, I've been hurt, or I've perceived I've been hurt, or I'm part of a class that, that I can say is, is perceived to be hurt. So there. So interestingly enough, when the church uh, goes through, since they recognize it's not about immorality, or it's not about ignorance, but it's about an exercise of power and trying to gain power in the world. There's there's two uh, there's two origins of critical race theory, Marxism and postmodernism. So in order to respond to critical race theory, we always have to go back to the way that the church stringently opposed Marxism and has opposed postmodernism. So Marxism is based in a class struggle against capitalism. Against since uh, uh, get under a, a, a system of um, systematic capitalism, where you have the class struggle between the laborers and between the the capitalists, and then postmodernism, in which every single norm and truth claim is culturally relative and masks for the interests of power. This is where we get moral relativism. Right? We get moral relativism from the fact of if I say something true. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm having a discussion with someone who's a postmodern or a moral relativist. They'll say that may be true in, in, in your life. And that might be true, but there is no general truth that we can all hold to because it's always going to be, um, it's always going to be relative to the culture. And the only reason that you want it to be true is because if you, if, if you, if you, if it is true, then, then, then you're more powerful than I am. Right, which, anyways, that's just a postmodern world that we live in. And I've said before, it's actually it's not about it's not about truth. Uh, it seems like Descartes started Descartes started that postmodern movement. I think, therefore, I am, rather than action flowing from being. Right, he said, I think, therefore, I am. And now we these days we just make it to I'm angry, therefore I am. Right, in order to like validate our existence, we have to be angry about something. And it's like, calm down, folks. Ditch the coffee, take a chill pill, as my dad would say. So, some of the logical fallacies in critical race theory. Uh, the fallacy of relevance. So, this is an argument that stands regardless of the person making it, its cogency, and its historical cultural origins. Right? So, for example, yes. 
So fallacy of relevance. So this argument stands no matter what you no, no matter you know what other argument you know seems to chip away at it. You know we're just going to stick by it. So the fallacy of relevance. Also a number of ad hominem fallacies in it. So a circumstantial ad hominem. So it's rejection of truth claim because some aspect there's some aspect about the person who's making it. So this is like a true ad hominem attack. And then also poisoning poisoning the well which is a type of ad hominem, which is getting people to ignore a person's claim by casting aspersions on their character, by casting aspersions on their character. So if we want to say like, you know, no, we're not dealing with systematic racism. We're not dealing with, you know, we're not dealing with that. And they'll say, oh, well, you know, this is, this is your weakness, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's also in a, in a more political sense, we talk about what about ism, you know, well, what about, what about what they did, you know, then or anyways. So, also a genetic fallacy. So a, the genetic fallacy is about the origins of the argument which, in which you reject a claim because some historical evidence is questionable. So for example, if I say to someone, uh, smoking is bad, it causes cancer. And they say, well, well what's, your, what's, your, um, what's your proof? And I said, well, the first proof goes back to the experiments being done in concentration camps in Nazi Germany. They say, well, those were evil people. You know, we, we, that, that's no basis for your argument. And it's like, no, they, they, they did come up with truth things. Like, for example, we wouldn't have organ transplants if it wasn't for the, the things going on in, in the concentration camps. It's not a good thing, but I'm not going to go to a doctor and say, because of the origins of where this came from, I'm going to allow my kidney, kidneys to fail and not accept a kidney transplant because that's the genetic fallacy, right? The origin of, 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 of the basis of truth. Um, because it came from some evil means. Um, fallacies of presumption, begging the question, argues in a way that presupposes a claim. So this this is actually one of the the authors, um, D'Angelo. It talks about critical race race theory and and its academic application in uh, the universities. D'Angelo says, whiteness studies begin with the premise that racism and white privilege exist. And rather than work to prove its existence, work to reveal it. Right? So the idea that I, you have to see the world through this lens. And when you see the world through my lens, now you'll, get, now you'll see that, that it's true. Right? So if we presume that it's there, then we'll just then see everything that happens in the world according to that, according to that uh, uh, framework. So if you're already looking through those glasses, you'll see everything that they see. There's also a, a special, this is the one that I was talking about, a special pleading. Um, which is a fallacy of presumption. It's called special pleading. It's also called double standard. So, for example, if you have politician A and politician B, and I say about politician A, you know, you can't vote for him because he's an adulterer, and you would never vote for an adulterer, right? Because that's just really bad. And then somebody comes back to me and says, well, what about politician B? And I'm like, well, his policies are really, really good for us, and so I'm going to overlook his adultery. What? You can't do that. So the same thing happens with critical race theory in which there's double standards for different people. And they actually say, we need to treat white people like this and we need to treat non-white people like this. It's like, that's racism. <laughs> that's racism itself rather than saying, we need to find a way in which we treat everyone equally and that we apply the law equally. And they have a fair share, not, not when I say fair share, that, that is circumstantial. It doesn't mean that it's going to be an equal share in material resources, but a fair share in order to promote the well-being and the harmony of others. 
So the church's response uh, can be found uh, can be founded in Rerum Novarum by Leo the Thirteenth, where he says, ascribing value to a people or a class, better or worse, right? To ascribe value better or worse to a people or class based on that fact alone, they belong to that people or class, is abhorrent to reason and truth. And then he also writes in Humanum Genus, all men are equal to one another, including in rights and duties. Right? So if somebody's going to claim that they have a right to something, they also have to be able to say, and this is how I'm dutifully living out, you know, my own participation in the community, in the nation. Right? Basically, you can't have freeloaders. Right? A parent would kick a freeloaded child, freeloading child out of their house, right? So the, so, the, so the same thing is be like, okay, how can we get to the point in which not only are you receiving a benefit from society, but you are also a benefit to society? The only ones, the only, the only people who like would receive a benefit from society but are not a benefit to society are welfare citizens, are welfare uh, receivers and uh, wards of the state. That's just true. Otherwise, veritatis splendor, not all culture. This is very interesting. I hope we have time. Yeah, we do. I'm going to go over this very quickly. Veritati Splendor, Pope John Paul II. So the, the splendor of truth. He writes, not all cultures are to be equally valued. Cultures are to be judged according to the individuals they produce. How interesting is that? So a culture itself is not good or bad. But does that culture then produce someone who is a morally good or bad person? And so you judge the person by their actions. Right, not judge in the sense that we condemn them or anything, but you judge the, their actions as morally good or suitable to the to the to the community. And then, if if there seems to be a common uh, a, a common pr production of, of citizens that are morally uh, that are that are morally bad, then we look at the culture and say, okay, now we have to judge some of this some of the culture and and start to work to change that culture. So judge according to the individuals they produce. And so moral relativism, so if we have a culture, and Pope Benedict XVI was always talking about this, if we have a culture that's, that's morally relativistic, it's going to produce people that are just going to say, I have complete freedom, you can't tell me what's right or what's wrong, and anything that I do, you know, as long as it doesn't affect the other person, you know, it, no one should worry about it. And then we recognize what's happened in our society in which by allowing that moral relativism, it's chipping away at the foundations of family, uh, of marriage and family life, right? When we chip away at those foundations, culture and, and, and our nation has nowhere to stand because that's the building block of society is the, is the natural family. It's also interesting, so again, in, in the document, The Church and Racism, um, the, the, the authors said that um, one injustice cannot be replaced with another injustice. And they were writing specifically in the late, in 1988, the Church and Racism came out in 1988, and they were speaking specifically about apartheid South Africa. And it said, if you're working for justice, those who are oppressed cannot fight to oppress and subjugate those who oppress them. Right, because that's dehumanizing another person, and you're not actually correcting the, the 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 issue. You're just extenuating, and you're saying, "Well, this is justice." It's like that's not justice. True reconciliation is justice. 
when I was reading the church and racism another number of years ago, and I read this section on, on apartheid South Africa, you know what popped into my head? The way in which we taught, uh, we, we, uh, the International Criminal Court treated Nazi soldiers. Fair, dignified trials, right? They tried to protect as much as they could their identity because they knew that people would go after them, right? I mean, and you could agree with the man manner of justice and things like that, but just the way in which you know, they, they carried out the trials in a very systematic way because they didn't want to dehumanize them, even though they were they did awful things, and many of them were terrible people, right? They still treated, they still wanted to show that we could treat those who were oppressing um, other peoples and other, um, you know, anyways, that's what I thought of. So the important thing here as I wrap up is that, you know, in, in all these things, we must maintain an evangelical spirit with all, right? We must maintain an evangelical spirit with all in which we really want to promote the gospel values and a true reconciliation with mankind. And I think that people look at the world around them these days in too much of a bird's eye view. And they recognize that, you know, they, 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 they look at their own neighborhood and they're like, I mean, except for the, you know, that guy doesn't, you know, that guy doesn't take care of his lawn. Besides that, <laughs> I mean, you, you normally you walk into to most neighborhoods and you have, you know, your Asian family, your black family, your, you know, and they can get together for a cookout and the kids play together. And you're just like, what is all this? But it's being fomented at a, at a national level. It's being fomented at a larger level where you say, I just want to get along with my neighbors. I want to live in peace and harmony. We sh all share the same values. We all want a productive community for our kids to, kids to be raised in. Um, And that we have to be very, very careful when we deal with any, any, any authority or any theory or any sort of uh, justice solution, like critical race theory being one of them, that purports that it can solve the issue by requiring total control over society, both public and private. As soon as we recognize that somebody can say, uh, and I said this recently about the World Economic Forum, and they were like, we can reduce greenhouse emissions by like 80%. How are we going to do it? We're going to require, require everyone to eat dried bugs. And I was like, there it is. They always say, we have to require everyone to do this, right? We have to require everyone to use electric stoves. I don't know, never mind. Um, right? Get rid of the gas stoves, whatever it is. Um, so we just have to be, we have to be um, as our Lord says, um, you know, Cunning as serpents, right? Cunning as serpents. And then just always remember that if the truth is on our side, then there's no reason to get riled up over these things. But to say, okay, what's, what's the truth behind it? What's the foundation of it? And does it truly uh, promote the, the progress of the nation and the progress of its citizens individually and collectively? So, glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be world without end. Amen.